All right, this is Kevin Bossemeyer with UCI Conversations, and my guest today is UCI physics and astronomy professor Jonathan Fang. Jonathan has a remarkable background earning degrees from Harvard, Cambridge, and Stanford universities. His studies also included time with world-famous physicist Stephen Hawking. Jonathan Fang works at the smallest and largest frontiers of physics, from the tiniest subatomic particles to the largest galaxies. The goal, I believe, is to determine where the universe came from, where we are now, and where we are going. Now, before you become too intimidated by his area of expertise, <laughs> he has also been intimately involved with a well-received comic strip series about physics and also been recognized as a geek of the week on the TV show, The Big Bang Theory. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Did I get the brief pretty good? Did I leave anything out? No, Put that's excellent. That's a very kind introduction. So I appreciate that. <laughs> you will. You're welcome. Jonathan, I know you have another pet project that's near and dear to your heart here at UCI, and it's called What Matters to Me and Why. The speaking season series gets off tomorrow, Wednesday, October 8th. You are the co-chair. Could you please inform our listeners who are not familiar with this program about what it is and just tell us slowly about what your drive and passion about the program is? Yeah, sure. My pleasure. So this is a program that's now in its eighth season, and it's basically a series designed to give faculty and staff at UCI a forum to just talk about exactly what it says, what matters to me and why. And the motivation is that, you know, we see people talking about their research, uh, teaching, of course, but oftentimes we don't get a chance to dig deeper, see what's under the hood in some sense, <laughs> see what, you know, really drives them, what makes them tick. And this series was designed to just really give people free reign, talk about whatever matters to them and why, as long as it's sort of a very deep-seated passion, something that really motivates them. And it's been uh, very interesting. Like I said, it's in the eighth season now. We've had seven speakers every year, one a month during the academic year, and uh, have had speakers from all departments, all devils of seniority, who have talked about everything from their personal journeys to particular issues that they're passionate about. And it's just been an incredible ride, and I just enjoyed helping to organize it these many years. How did you originally come up with the idea? Ah, that's an interesting story. So about, well, now it's nine years ago, I wrote a cover story for Scientific American. And that was quite an interesting thing. And I remember going to airports as I was traveling to conference stuff and seeing my cover story on the newsstand there, you know, in the, in the airport. So that was really fantastic. <clears throat> but uh, when I came back to UCI, some of my colleagues said, you know, that's really quite an interesting thing that you wrote a piece for the public, but it also was, you know, so prominently displayed. Can you talk to us about it? So I gave a talk at a faculty group about this article. The article is called Dark Worlds, which is about dark matter and dark energy, basically the part of the universe that we don't see, but we know is out there, which is part of my research portfolio. And it has to do with all sorts of things, like you said in the introduction, it has to do with the beginning of the universe, how the universe will end, things like that. And so I gave this talk and described some of the things that were in there. And people then said, you know, it's an interesting talk about the science, but also this must have some interplay with your personal beliefs and things, you know, things talking about the creation of the universe and things. How does that interplay with what you think and what you believe outside of your scientific work? And uh, that became a really interesting discussion. 
And then we thought, well, you know, that was a pretty interesting talk. It'd be nice to go give this talk to a wider audience. And so we looked around UCI to try to find an appropriate series in which a talk like that could be given. And we didn't really find anything that was made for that. There are obviously lots of research seminars and things like that, but that's not really what this was about. And so then with a couple of people, we started, started formulating this. And in the end, to make a long story short, we went to uh, the chancellor at the time, Michael Drake, and just proposed to him that, you know, there seems to be a gap in all of the array of talks and things that we have on campus. There doesn't seem to be a place where people could just talk about what drives them and how their research relates to their work. I mean, their work and research relates to their, you know, life and personal motivation, things like that. And he, uh, he was incredibly receptive. He basically heard it, and within 15 minutes, he funded it and said, we'll put this under the auspices of the office of the chancellor. We'll provide lunch for everyone. I'll we'll give you some uh, help. And we have some fantastic staff who have been on board. Uh, Debbie Nielsen has been basically organizing this from the chancellor's office ever since it started. And that's how we got off to the start. <laughs> and then we had the fantastic opportunity to just start looking around, you know, the amazing faculty and staff at UCI and just start picking people. Yeah. And Kevin, as you know, as on the organizing committee, you know, that's just a fantastic exercise to just think, wow, it's like a kid in a candy shop. I mean, there's so many stories, so many interesting life stories and, and, and uh, experiences that you can draw on from a community like this. And so we just try to put a few of them on display once a month. Excellent. Do you want to describe who's going to speak tomorrow? Yeah. So we are really happy to have uh, Richard Matthew kicking us off. He's a professor. He has been on campus, I think, well, it's only 10 to 15 years. But he comes from an incredible background of having basically worked all over the world, getting himself into all sorts of tricky places. I don't know, it's, it's hard to summarize his life. It, but it I would, Yeah, but I would certainly encourage people to come and hear about it. He's given many talks in like TED Talks and things like that. He's an excellent storyteller. And we're just looking forward to his, his first talk, and I'm sure it'll be fascinating. Over these last eight years, have there been any surprises? Is the program evolving, or is it about the same now as it was when it started? Describe yeah. a little of the history. I think it's pretty much the same vision as when it started. There have been surprises in the sense of you know what people talk about and how things have worked out. I remember, for example, we had a talk about the day after Trump was elected. We had a talk from someone who basically was organizing undocumented students on campus. And it was an incredibly emotional talk. Mm -hmm. uh, Anna Berrigan is her name. And that was just completely, you know, we set that up eight months in advance, but it just happened that it was the day after the election. And she was just talking about what it meant to undocumented students on campus. Very moving talk. You know, sometimes things just kind of work out that way. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had fascinating talks by, well, there's so many to mention, but, you know, I remember hearing our uh, dean of the, the law school, Song Richardson, gave a fantastic talk. She's someone actually I knew as an undergrad in college when she was a concert pianist, but now she's a dean of our law school. <laughs> so you know, that was interesting to me, just to hear the, the evolution of a career like that. But yeah, there's just been many, many interesting stories, people talking about their childhood, things that, seminal events that changed the direction of their life. Um, people talking about their religious convictions, their, their lack of religious convictions, their, um, you know, just just how what they're doing now. I remember Claire Yu talked about, you know, how um, she does work on, you know, fighting cancer, and then she got cancer, you know, then 
that obviously is a really interesting connection between your research work and your personal life. Uh, it's just so many things just come out once you let people talk and sort of take off all constraints and just say, here's 30 minutes, go for it, tell us whatever you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you actually spoken at the speaking series? No, I haven't. Okay. And so uh, we try to you know, keep uh, <laughs> the organizing committee sort of off the, the list of possible speakers. I hope that maybe one day I will not be organizing and maybe the organizers will invite me to talk, but we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> Very good. In terms of, well, just to keep on the topic of, of what matters to me and why, well, maybe I'll turn the tables. You know, mm-hmm. What matters to you and why? What was your journey to get to where you are today? Hmm. Well, yeah, there's a lot of different sort of strings that lead into it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I should say, one thing that every What Matters to Me and Hawaii speaker tells us after they do it is that this was one of the hardest talks they've ever had to give <laughs> and required the most preparation. <laughs> and so, um, you know, if I ever get invited, I will, I'm sure, experience the same thing and take several months and try to think really deeply about it. But off the cuff, I mean, I have always been interested in, in math and physics. And even from a little boy, I sort of wanted to be a math professor. And I always really dreamed of working at a university. When I was a kid, I grew up near Berkeley, and so um, would take BART into the campus sometimes, even when I was quite young. And it just fascinated me to be on a university campus. I remember just hearing, you know, you walk down, you know, in the student center and hear nine different languages or something. Uh, just, it just blew my mind that there are people from all over the world in this one little place, and yet they had sort of a a unified interest. They were all brought together by some common goal, some research project, or they wanted to learn about something. And that just fascinated me. And so it was, you know, sort of very early on, I wanted to be a professor, a math professor originally, and now I became a physics professor. But I think that was, you know, always in my mind from the beginning. And then how I got to physics, well, so I wanted to do math, but then I had some very interesting experiences in college I went to an extremely famous math professor and told him, you know, I want to be a math professor. Tell me how do I get there and how do I do this? And one thing he said as well, if you want to be a mathematician, you should feel very comfortable working alone. And I thought, that sounds terrible. (laughs) I don't want to do that. (laughs) He said, no, but, you know, most good math results are achieved by one person working alone. There's a single author papers. And that just didn't sound good. I didn't realize that when I was a kid. Uh, so then I sort of thought, well, okay, what is very close to math, but not quite like that? And it turns out theoretical physics is uh, quite mathematical, but at the same time, you do typically work in groups of, you know, two to four, maybe even bigger. And so that turned out to be a nice thing. Uh, and I just enjoyed the idea of trying to find um, sort of the rules of how the universe works, you know, underlying all this diversity, how we look around and we see things that seem totally different from, you know, from light to matter. And at the same time, at the bottom, as we dig deeper and deeper, we start finding that uh, there are common rules that govern how things interact and what they are. And also, at the same time, we find out that we don't know a whole lot of other things. Like, we don't know that the universe is composed of, well, 95% of it is stuff we don't know. So, you know, we've been working really hard and in 
in high school and junior high, you learn about the periodic table and you think you've got hydrogen and helium and you've learned what all the elements of the periodic table are and therefore you know what the world is made of. And now we know that that was actually 5% of the universe. That's this little sliver of the pie and 95% is, you know, something else. And what it is, we don't know. Um, and, you know, some people try to explain how remarkable this is. One of the best analogies I've heard is one person said, imagine you were trying to speak English, but all the only letter of the alphabet you knew was A, which is about 5% of the alphabet, right? How much of the richness of that language have you really got? (laughs) Obviously none. I mean, you're just so far short of understanding the whole language and even the alphabet. And so that's where we are in terms of understanding the universe. And that just really uh, drives me. I mean, that's something that really motivates me. I want to try to figure out, in particular, there's something called dark matter, which sort of holds our galaxy together. And I really am, that's sort of my research goal, is to find out what is dark matter. How long have we known that we only knew 5%? Has that that been the last 20 years, the last 40 years? Did Einstein know that? No, he didn't know that. Although there were early indications, even as early as the 1930s, that we were missing a lot of stuff. But they were, I mean, it's so crazy because, you know, astronomy is sort of built on the idea that you have a telescope and you look out there and you see the stuff, right? So, um... How could, you know, the idea that you could look and then just be missing most of it is a very bizarre thing. And so the the sort of early indications were sort of a little bit indirect. I mean, they weren't so obvious. And because basically you were looking for invisible stuff, which is sort of a, you know, how can you look for invisible <laughs> stuff? But, but you saw it through uh, indirect things. You saw it pulling on stuff with its gravity, even though it wasn't shining light at you. Um, so is that how we figured it out? What you'd have these masses, and they would be doing things, and it, so you would, based on mathematical calculations, was it? There's more there than meets the eye because we know it's doing things mathematically. That more matter would have to be there for it to do that. Is that it? That's it? exactly right. Yeah, and so one way is we see galaxies which are, of course, composed of stars, and we see them spinning. So you sort of have, many people would know the the picture of a galaxy sort of has these spiral arms of stars, and they go around and around, they spin. And you can figure out how fast it should be spinning because you know that the amount of matter in the middle has to sort of keep it in its orbit, has to pull on it gravitationally. And the answer, though, is that they're spinning much faster than should be. In other words, if all the matter that was in the center was what we could see, then these stars are spinning so fast they should have sort of flung off to infinity. You know, they should have, they they can't be kept in their orbits. And so the only way they can be going around in the orbits we see is that there must be more matter in the middle that's holding them in there. And yeah, that's one of the uh, classic reasons that we think that we only have 5% of the, the universe down. And by this point, though, it's now been supplemented by uh, probably, you know, nine or ten other ways of finding this stuff. This stuff can bend light, so we can actually see, for example, we see, if we look in certain places, we can see a galaxy twice. We can see 
one side the light goes around the dark matter on one side and then it also bends and goes around the other side and so we look out and we see actually two images of the same galaxy and either there are two identical galaxies which is very unlikely or you just seen two images of the same thing well how could that be well there had to be a bunch of mass between you and that that was curving the light so that you could see it in two different directions and so we have very very strong evidence that this is true and remarkably if you ask how much of this dark matter do you need to explain all the evidence, every piece of evidence gives you roughly the same amount. So that sort of concordance is really strong evidence that you're on the right track, but it's also just telling you just don't know what it is. Yeah. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's a huge outstanding question, not only for astronomy, just, you know, what is the universe made of, you know, what is, what's the inventory of the universe, but for cosmology, which is really studying the universe as a whole, how did it start and how did it end, how will it end, because, you know, if you don't know what's in it, you have a very hard time evolving the universe backwards and forwards to get to the beginning or to get to the end. And then it's also relevant for particle physics, because particle physics, which is looking at the world at the very smallest scales, you know, like we dig into an atom, we see a nucleus, we dig into a nucleus, we see it's made out of protons and neutrons. We dig into por- por- protons and neutrons, we see they're made out of quarks. But, you know, the particle physics goal is to figure out what the universe is made out of. And um, we now know that, you know, we're nowhere near a complete inventory of that. And so that's how the very smallest studies, you know, of what's inside nuclei and atoms and things relates to the very largest things, what's the universe made of, galaxies and things like that. And that's a fascinating connection because you don't usually think of, you know, trying to study the universe with microscopes or to study atoms with telescopes. Usually it's the other way around, but it turns out they're all related now. And it's a very interesting sort of uh, complementary uh, field of study now where the, at this interface between astronomy and physics, you have all sorts of interesting things going on. Has physics always been partnered with astronomy that was one thing i was surprised when i first came to UCI. oh physics and astronomy but then as you start to think about oh okay i guess that makes sense is is it always kind of together it is not actually and so yeah many um, universities there's a physics department and there's an astronomy department but here and at several other uc campuses there's physics and astronomy and it's interesting it leads to some, you know, faculty squabbles because physicists have different, you know, what they like in their graduate students are different from what astronomers would like in their graduate students. So how do you structure the the degree requirements to make everyone happy? It has some like little, you know, there's little squabbles and faculty meetings about this. But on the whole, it's fantastic to be in the same department because of this very reason that these fields have kind of grown together and some of the most interesting stuff is happening at the interface. So I'm totally happy that I'm in a physics and astronomy department. People talk about breaking them up, and I, I really hope that never happens. <laughs> I know where your vote lies. Yeah. Now, what about chemistry? That seems like it would be physics, astronomy, and chemistry. You know, can you... you well, know, yeah, I mean, there's certainly fascinating stuff going on on the border of physics and chemistry as well. Yeah. And actually, there are interesting things relating astronomy to nuclear physics and chemistry and there's all sorts of you know interesting connections all in various places basically because if you go back early enough in the universe's history the universe was sort of a hot uh, dense place 
and you would have basically nuclei and things were being formed at that time. And so there's sort of this cosmochemistry field that can happen also. Something called Big Bang nucleosynthesis is related to these sort of issues. But so far, I don't know of any chemistry astronomy departments that have been <laughs> merged together. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, based on our limited time, Jonathan, maybe we'll, we'll just bring it back to what matters to me and why. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about this season at all in terms of who's coming up and how people find out about the series and register? Yeah, absolutely. So, like we said, we have uh, seven talks. So Richard Matthew will be kicking off tomorrow. That's going to be a fascinating opening talk. I think the registration for that is open already and, and full, but people who are really interested, I would encourage them to maybe even come. There might be some extra room. This is always held in the same place. It's Humanities Gateway 1030, and we start on lunchtime a little before 1140, and then the talk starts at noon. And so this happens every second Wednesday of the months we hold it. And so people should kind of be on the lookout. An email goes out to invite people to register. And I would urge people to really register quickly because it does sort of fill up very quickly. So the next one will be Ao Moa Shields, who's actually in in my department. Fascinating person who has degrees not only in physics uh, and astronomy, but also in uh, acting. In fact, worked as an actor for a while and now studies the search for exoplanets, looking for planets outside our solar system and, in fact, life outside of our world, our Earth. And so it's an absolutely fascinating uh, field right now. So after that, we have David Kniffin, who's the uh, head coach of the volleyball team. Obviously, the UCI volleyball team is really uh, a juggernaut, a huge, uh, very successful sports program. And so it'll be great to hear from the head coach. Carol Burke, professor of English. Joel Veenstra, I'll just kind of go through through so many, but Joel Veenstra, lecturer in drama. Uh, Mike Arias, who many people on campus will have known for his long, long, many, many decades of service as the uh, former associate chancellor and chief of staff of the Office of the Chancellor. And then we'll close the season with uh, Judy Stepan Norris, who's uh, a former vice provost, a very senior professor, and a professor of sociology. So it's going to be another great season, and I'm looking forward to every single one of these talks. Fantastic. And it is free, correct? That's right. It's free, and you get a free lunch, so it's even better than free. <laughs> you know, People say there's nothing like a free, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but actually there is. So <laughs> what matters to me will provide you a free lunch. Uh, you just register, come down, and just be prepared for a fun and interesting uh, hour of uh, just hearing what matters to someone who has contributed really importantly to the community on campus. And I found in my experience in listening to these programs, it's a personal inspiration that where people have come from and their stories about you know what drives them and it, it inspires me. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I totally agree too. The the talks some of them are hilarious. Some of them are so funny, you know, you see them show photos from their youth and they're hilarious. Some of them are incredibly sad. We hear stories of uh, just overcoming incredible obstacles and, and people coming from the most, um, you know, destitute and difficult situations in their life. But the unifying thing for me, too, is that they're inspirational. I mean, they really, they, they make you, they open your world up a little bit, and they also at the same time make you feel very proud that you're here at UCI 
and you know that this is sort of this mixing of all sorts of people from such different backgrounds and yet we're all one community and so I've actually found that really inspirational as well. Fantastic Jonathan and I think this is a quote that I heard on YouTube that you said when you said at the end of your speech to hopefully when you hear you know your presentation or particularly what matters to me and why that the whole point is to help you make you inspire you to think wonder and be awed by the world around us and mm. i absolutely think that that's what what matters to me and why does thank you for being with us and exposing us to the program well thank you and thanks a lot for the chance to talk with you kevin